All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. It's okay to meet your heroes. It's okay to dream. It's okay to let life float you to where you should be. In 2021, Questlove asked me to do a one-on-one interview with Elvis Costello at Electric Lady Studios for Questlove Supreme. At first I said no. Just kidding. I jumped at the opportunity. But I wanted Questlove there for part of it, just to see what two of the greatest musicologists and music historians of our time would discuss. I wasn't disappointed, and you won't be either. It's hard to keep up, but it's worth it. And it's hilarious listening to me try to. They're both legends. They're both brilliant. Enjoy part one this week and part two next week. This was originally aired in April 2022. Phew, can't believe this happened. All right, Costello one. And he's interviewed tonight by. You know, I don't even know the bloody words. <laughs> direction, like it was trying to lift this person up that was so. Maybe down. it's a little dramatic. I I just wanted to get your attention. It looks like uh, you're no good. Ah, okay. The reason I mentioned Elvis Costello is because those are the records that I just pulled out because I got a call from Jack from New City. The reason I mentioned Elvis Costello. Every day I write the book the way it was written, which was kind of much more sort of strummy. Party down with Elvis. What a great first line in the history of first lines of rock and roll songs, huh? I used to be disgusted, but now I try to be amused. Sometimes you can't read a newspaper without keeping that in mind. And he says, well, that's fine, but you never said what the pads, paws, and claws means. So that's what you have to say. I mean, and this Hang out with Elvis. educational part of right with Paul McCartney is that Hang out with Elvis. he's very logical. So he goes, you know, this is what you got to do. Hang out with Elvis. There's going to be music in it. I'm going to cut it in We here. have with us a Mr. Elvis Costello. You've got everything, everything, everything. Yeah, you know, I've Today, Mr. Costello, you've come out with various albums throughout that I probably don't need to clear. Like the roots running over high fidelity by themselves at 30 Rock, you know, before that first performance. Oh, let's have that. Yeah, that'd be good. Can we get that? Yeah, yeah, sure. We can. Do we do that in the... Did we do that in the... We did that on the show, yeah? 
Did we do that on the show? High Fidelity? Yeah. yeah that was the first, the first song. Yeah. Yeah. And is that the same one we did Chelsea? And then the second time was like Stations of the Cross and someone else. Yeah. And John. Exactly. Hey, man. Belated happy birthday. I tried to play a happy birthday, but I couldn't play for shit. I forgot how to play the piano. I still feel... Um, I still feel... That's good. No, I said they set this up. preface ladies and gentlemen welcome to the first quest love supreme that has been done in person since the march 16th 2020 pandemic how strange that we don't have a supremo roll call candy Um, It should also be noted that this was recorded on January, what's today's date? Uh, 25th. Okay, so the the day of this recording is January 25th, and um, the reason why I feel compelled to acknowledge the date is because we are also recording inside of Electric Lady Studios on this, the 22nd anniversary of uh, the seminal album that kind of, you know, brought me to the studio in the first place, which is Voodoo by D'Angelo. So I thought it was rather apropos that Sugar Steve and I, oh, by the way, uh, uh, boss, edit, edit. <laughs> I'm editing this, so it's, don't worry about anything. I'm going to chop it up. You are not chopping shit up. Yeah. Unpaid Bill, uh, Fontigolo and Laia are not with us right now. So it's right now it's just, uh, me and Steve. The last time we did this was with, uh, with Herb Alpert. Right. At, at this very studio. So for me, what's very important about this particular episode, and this is, uh, again, um, me trying to improve as a human. This is all about going out of your comfort zone. So I'm here as a third wheel or as a referee or as training wheels because I really, it, it's my dream for uh, Sugar Steve to really bring out his voice in, in Questlove Supreme episodes. Cause you know, half the time we hog up all the the moments and he only gets like one comment in. And you know, that like Steve really has, in my opinion, like, I mean, he's like, all he, he has so much music knowledge that he has yet to share with you people unless you follow the, the the sugar network like of all of us he has his own fan club simply for his music knowledge so that should tell you something but um for me i thought what what's the best way to throw sugar steve in the in the long awaited jump into the river and he's really uncomfortable right now. I mean, this long gargantuan. I told you, I'm editing. You're this, not so. editing <laughs> this at all, yo. I'm sorry, you're not. 
I'm like you. I'm a little uncomfortable with compliments, but great. I, and 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 see, we're at a crossroads here. We're I, not. I, no, we're I'm, not. I, yes, we are. This is the fact. Look, it's Steve. We. This is the very kind. Look the, where we are. We're in literally at the cross. We're in the we're in the center of Studio A. Yes, I get it. At like the X, the middle of the X point. In the Similar room. to Samuel Jackson and Pulp Fiction, you're not talking yourself out of this shit. I'm not trying to. All I'm saying is that you know there comes a time where we have to like. The, How the, long do you have to stay tonight? Because you know, listen, okay, I'm here all night. Listen, Great. listen. My whole point is this. My whole point is this. The, the way that you're acting right now is exactly how I was acting when David Dinnerstein and Robert Fivlin had told me that it's my destiny to direct a documentary. And I'm like, dude, I'm a first-time driver. Like, All right. I got to I gotta just jump in here. No. No. <laughs> this, is, this is a special Questlove Supreme. Yes. And yes. I, it's my dream to watch Steve talk to his musical hero. I've, I've thought about this. This is essentially as if you got to interview Prince. I know. You know, like that's essentially where that makes sense to people. I like, feel like I'm the guy in a threesome that isn't needed. So. Wow. <laughs> no, well, see, here's the. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> here's, here's the problem. And yeah. you say you're trying to become a better person. Yes. So just accept, accept this. As much as I'm thrilled to be interviewing, you know, my number one musical hero here. Yes. You're very much a part of the story that I want to tell tonight. Yeah, I'll, I'll be here. But and, and I need you here to tell the story, not just the story of the last 10 years since we've met him, let's say, but right. a certain theme that I want to get to where, that you both have in common. <laughs> so it's like you're trying to like say you're at training wheels, but you're, you're the musical encyclopedia. I'm here with two of the acknowledged global music Let's encyclopedias and you're telling and you're telling people that i have musical knowledge about something let's just do this this is three friends talking but eventually i'm gonna get up from this seat and go to studio b it's gonna be just like 2000 it's, it's voodoo all over again. it's voodoo all over again i got kimber waiting next door kimberly's is next door so okay you got two rooms tonight yeah i got two rooms however it's my dream to see you top the jimmy jam episode so, okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very special in-person live at Electric Lady Studios. <laughs> You're just cracking up over here with our good friend Elvis Costello. Thank you. All right. So, and well, now for the intro. <laughs> right now, my now the now the real intro because like whatever that was. Okay. Did I mention that I have D held? For later on, I, I mean, I, I really would love to just continue with what he was saying because like this dude right here. Wait, <laughs> look. Let's just start. No, no, okay, well, no, I think people need to hear this. Okay. <laughs> just like you thought they needed to hear what you just said. Yes, okay. One of the reasons why he agreed to do Wise Up Ghost, he wanted to give me this gift of doing an album with you. Isn't that crazy? Well, I've, I've, I've seen him give you gifts like that before. Yeah, Remember, I, was there on your, me, yeah. I was there on your birthday that time. Right, and you've given me gifts yeah, too. Anyway, saying, let's, yeah. let's start. Welcome to Questlove Supreme. My name is Sugar Steve. I, I swear to God, Steve, if you cut out what just started the show, you're fired. You're fired. You're fired. Fire, 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 fire. I'm going to put an echo on that. Fired. <laughs> Go ahead. So, with 30 something studio albums, mm. dozens of other compilations and live releases, box sets and EPs, endless singles and B sides with a substantial autobiography 
and a 45-year career, playing countless live concerts and appearing in media as diverse as singing on a commercial jingle with his father, mm. guest hosting the David Letterman show, mm. Austin Powers movies, yep. and his own influential interview show, Spectacle. If you haven't been properly introduced to him by now, I certainly can't do it in a mere few minutes. <laughs> Amir. Get it? Yeah, dude. But because Elvis's career has had such a deep connection in the lives of his fans, there is a kind of magic to it all. And with any kind of magic, one of the main attractions is to try to figure out how the magician is doing it. So here is a very brief look at his background story and a quick summation of his discography. Born Declan McManus in London to a musical family, his dad was a professional trumpet player and singer, first in popular big bands and then on his own. His mom worked in a record shop whose customers relied on her to have the coolest singles and albums from the United States. Elvis moved from London to Liverpool and then back again before launching his career in London. From an early age, Elvis played guitar, and by the early 70s, formed a guitar duo with one of his friends. Alan Mays. Thank you. I knew that. <laughs> he worked a few non-music-related jobs, and then in 1976 was signed to Stiff Records, an independent record label in London. At the time, Elvis was performing as D.P. Costello. Stiff founder and Elvis manager at the time, Jake Riviera, suggested using the name Elvis. His first four albums, 1977's My Aim is True, 1978's This Year's Model, 1979's Armed Forces, and 1980's Get Happy, came with such a variety of intense pleasures. The poetic and existential lyrics, the melodies, which made you play the records over and over. A lot of energy, a lot of sound. And that's something else that only musicians who inspire the most fanatic audiences have the ability to turn all their fans into advocates of the artist, ready to lecture you about meanings and understandings only they and the artist may explain to you. After his debut, The Attractions became his recording and touring band for almost 10 years, and each player in that, in that band, Steve Naive, Pete Thomas, and Bruce Thomas, had a skill set which elevated the whole until they sounded like an unstoppable machine cranking out literate pop, which was both political and romantic. As he broadened the sounds and styles of the music he used on his second great group of records, 1981's Trust, 1981's Almost Blue, and his Jeff Emmerich-produced Imperial Bedroom from 1982, Elvis displayed a degree of growth that didn't seem possible because the first few albums were already so advanced. With 1983's Punch the Clock and 1984's Goodbye Cruel World, Elvis switched producers, if not sounds and styles, from his earlier albums. Although critiqued harshly by some, including Elvis himself, these albums and certainly the songs not only hold up today, mostly, <laughs> but can- Wait, from one to 10, how uncomfortable are you right now? <laughs> but he knows, go ahead, go ahead. he knows. It's a regurgitation of facts, but it's yeah. got some heart. Just, uh, yeah. It has heart. Okay. You're poetic, man. I knew you were so poetic. But uh, those albums, Punch the Clock and Goodbye, Cruel World, can now be seen to have charted a course for the rest of his career. 
a willful musical curiosity and ambition, which sees him changing genres and collaborators with an energy and facility that can inspire all who witness it. Like Live Aid, 1985, All You Need Is Love. King of America and Blood and Chocolate, both albums from 1986, hold a popular place in the hearts of diehard Elvis fans. Not only because they are incredible sets of song cycles telling compelling stories, but because they mark the point most of us who love Elvis gave up trying to figure him out. That freed us up for the guilt-free enjoyment of Elvis's next pop breakthrough, the single Veronica and the album Spike, 1989, which marked a change in record companies and a high-profile deal with Warner Brothers. Spike encompassed still greater musical territory and in general an inclusiveness, which made room for contributors as varied as James Burton, Mark Rebot, Paul McCartney, and Alan Toussaint, to name just a few, all in service of an album which hooked a new generation of fans. Mighty Like a Rose 1991 continued where Spike left off, with even more sophisticated arrangements and production. And from 1991 on, Elvis' discography has been a hopscotch game of going wherever his fans think he won't be, spiking his catalog with classics of what can only be called the genre of Elvis Costello. Writing for string quartets, the Juliet Letters in 1993. Numerous quote-unquote return-to-form albums over the years like 1994's Brutal Youth, then 1996's All This Useless Beauty, and Kojak Variety, an album of covers in 1995. The stunning collaboration with Burt Bacharach from 1998, titled Painted from Memory, 2002's When I Was Cruel, For the Stars, an album with opera singer and Sophie Von Hotter, mm. 2003's marvelous piano vocal album North, 2004's The Delivery Man with the Imposters. Shout out to Davy Farragher. And oh yeah, Elvis released a symphony that year as well. Il Sogno. I like music. It went to number one on the classical charts. Humanitarian and artistic efforts came together on the River in Reverse, a full LP from 2006 with Alan Toussaint to bring attention to the disaster of Hurricane Katrina. An overlooked gem called Momofuku in 2008 with the Imposters. 2009 and 10 bring two more T-Bone Burnett productions, Secret, Profane, and Sugarcane, and National Ransom. Well, that's a lot of albums. (laughs) (laughs) I'm lying down, though. And was it over at that point? Perhaps. Until. And I was told this by Diana Krall. <laughs> Until. Elvis Costello's creative fire and undernourished musical life force was reignited. Oh, will you come on? When he met Sugar Steve Mandel. And Questler. Put that silent. That's a direct quote from Diana Cross. What? No. Wow, God bless Diana Cross. Can we start now? No, I, it's, it's almost okay, done. It's so almost done. It, this is your moment. Okay. So this is where Wise Up Ghost happens. Recorded okay. in 2012 and released in 2013, Elvis and Quest, along with The Roots, got together to create Wise Up Ghost, and we'll obviously spend some time talking about that tonight. But to get current with Elvis's 
discography. After Wise Up Ghost came Grammy Award-winning Look Now from 2018, the first of four albums co-produced with the most wonderful producer and engineer, Sebastian Chris. So that's Look Now, Hey Clockface, Spanish Model, and the album that just came out, yet another great Elvis album here in 2022, The Boy Named If is what just dropped. QLS listeners from Electric Lady, along with Questlove, as he said, this is a very special episode of Questlove Supreme. Please welcome music icon Elvis Costello. This is the longest, like, that was 17 minutes. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm really proud of you, Steve. That I'm, I, I, I'm beaming like a, I'm your dad or something. And I am, too. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, this is really, Steve is... Wait, I don't even want to say that. Like, Steve only likes the background because I don't know. It's to me, like Steve and I would always talk about like having our own radio show when we were like working back in Philly. And this to me sounds this is like the equivalent of his radio shows that he used to he used to host on his own cassettes when he was like twelve <laughs> and thirteen years I've old. I've interviewed so. you before, way back when I was yes, a when teenager. he was twelve. Yeah. Yeah. So to see this moment happen, how how are you today? I'm doing great. This is exactly what I I I, I knew would happen here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. Are what? you kidding? You just I, I just mean, I mean I when you dub the little little Italian organ behind as well, it's gonna just sound like my obituary. <laughs> it's like uh, daily bit. You just have to have the voice going. And then the when are you gonna bring the choir in? Right. You know, uh, like, we'll yeah. have James Poison do all yeah. that. No, I appreciate it. No, because it's a lot. It's a lot of it's stuff. When much. I say it, it makes me go like, did I do all that? You did a like, lot. It's too damn much. <laughs> yes, you did a lot. That's why I tried to just sum up the past. Yeah. Well, let's know. start with whatever you want to talk about. Well, wait, I know. Yeah. I know we're going to nerd out on your career, but I just want to ask one question that's mm. sort of out of the realm of anything that was just uh, said in the last 18 minutes. Uh-huh. What did you do today? What did I do today? Yeah, I, what time did you wake up? 10 to 6. How does it like? How does your day start? Like, what do you do? It's it's mostly shaking like a couple of fifteen year olds out of bed. Uh, different amounts of persuasion. Oh, so Usually, you're still dead? Oh yeah, yeah. They got to get on the school bus at uh, five to seven. So that's you know. It's so a, you take it's your kids drill. to school? No, I take them down to the door and they get on the bus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do do you? Uh, uh, I not bad. Do your kids know you're Elvis Costello? Like, do they get it, or you're just more dead? Oh no, they they get that uh, something has been happening because they they came and watched the TV show the other night and they know what I'm doing. They, they, okay, so they they know. hear me. I mean, the thing is, the last two years, nobody's been able to get away from anybody. You know, I mean, even if they know I, they've been on the road with both of us right since they were six months old. They they remember it from when they were four. But when I said, hey, this summer we might go on the road with mom. That'll be great. You know, they're good at traveling. And, and they're 15, uh, 2007. They were born in 2006. Yeah. December so. 2006. So they are, you know, they, they'll be 16 extra December. So they, they're not long had a birthday. Okay. And they're great lads. And, you know, I having the amount I've traveled in my life, and we all have traveled, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have traded anything about these last two years except the, the fear of friends and my family and... Yeah, you know, far away. You're concerned about them, and you respond to an emergency or something. Right. But in terms of the time we had, the four of us, that that's unbeatable. You know, and and they got used to like, why is Dad out in the garden shouting into that microphone? That's because I was making a record. You know, <laughs> I worked out how to do it, and we all had to work out how to do it. I learned to play the electric violin. That was a worrying sound. You know. <laughs> are they uh, musically inclined? Like, are they? 
Yeah, they got music within them, and one of them was, you know, one of them told me that he, you know, he said, "I'm, I'm going to take piano this year." And I said, "Well, you already read music, right? Because you played trombone for a year in jazz band." He said, "Oh no, I wasn't reading. I, I would memorized it." So, you know. So, oh, okay. So by, by there's sound. some there's some of mom and the some of dad in it. You know, I can't sight read, neither can. I can write it down, I can, you know, but I can't read it back. So, what's that epigenetics like? Where your dad is Elvis Costello and your mom's Diana Krall? Like, I don't know. My dad's a dentist. <laughs> Listen, well, if you're you an go, engineer. If you go to school, if you go, to, if you're taught by sisters like I was, they just had a, such a complete conviction that I could sing when I was a little boy, because my dad was on the radio every week. They were convinced, and that was fine when I was five they drove me out of class and maybe sing for who, the priest or whoever came to the school but when you're 10 you hate that you know mm -hmm. that's see. the worst so my parents never made me do it so my, that, my dad being a singer never occurred to me I was going to do it until I was I was I don't know 17 so can right. you sing though because there was singing around you and you sang from an early uh, age or I, I, that I don't know I, I really don't know I mean uh, I can only remember music playing i mean i can remember i can remember being eye to eye with this there's this is record player called a decadecalia and i had this big red on 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 light on the front of it like one of those ones with a with a grill you know like a honeycomb on the front with a record player mm -hmm. like a, like with a lid on it and i just remember that looking at that like looking at any toy on the ground you know so i must have only been crawling around and i can remember it and it's i'm not imagining it i've got pictures you know of where it was in the place we lived so I guess so. my mother must have been playing that a lot. Back then, let's say when your father was mm -hmm. in his prime, singers had to actually yeah, not I only know, be able yeah. to sing. No, he's a way better singer than I am. I mean, he had a well, really good voice. But he was also a good mimic. So the funny thing about my dad was he sang in a kind of, the band was modeled on Glenn Miller. It was the same kind of music, sweet band, really. It wasn't a jazz group. Mm -hmm. He'd been a bebop trumpet player in Birkenhead at the time where he was born came to London to try and make a living in jazz like a lot of jazz musicians found that difficult when my mother and, and him got married and then I came along he took a job that was better paying which was singing because he could sing and so he had to sing whatever was in the hit parade he didn't get to choose mm -hmm. had to sing whatever was in the charts now that was fine in the 50s for somebody just singing a ballad I got pictures of my dad with one of those big bow ties like Frank Sinatra used to wear in the 40s. You know, mm -hmm. everybody just followed the trends. And he wanted to play like different people when he was playing. He wanted to play like Dizzy. Then he wanted to play like Clifford Brown, you know. Um, then, then he got in this dance band that used to just play what was in the charts. Well, what was in the charts by 1963, 64 mm -hmm. was a huge range of music that wasn't really designed for a 16-piece sweet band to play. But they did it nonetheless, because that was how music filtered through to us. We didn't have 12-hour a day, let alone 24-hour a day pop radio. Just that's why we had pirate radio, because right. that was a revolution that brought like the continuous pop music to English listeners. My dad was part of a process that preceded that, which was interpreting those songs. So he would have to sing a song like it wouldn't matter whether it was the latest song by Tom Jones or the latest song by The Who or the latest song by The Four Tops or the searches you know he had to do all those songs so crazy i know but i mean they didn't get he didn't get any choice it was whatever was in hip right so you're saying that there was somewhat 
a big band scene over there, but th- was there really a jazz, like a hard bop jazz scene oh, over there? Yeah, I mean, there's musicians that he that he wanted to, and he um, were some of his friends when they first came from Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Were the people that founded the modern jazz scene? You know, he tried to get the okay. gig with Ronnie Scott. Everybody wanted that gig. Mm-hmm. Ronnie formed the club. The other musicians of that generation. So Ronnie Scott was an actual person, because I yeah, know. no, Ronnie Scott was a tenor saxophone player that founded the club, and he was like one of the people that led the way. And as one or two of the musicians, another great tenor player called Tubby Hayes, he came to came to New York okay. and was accepted. Obviously, some English musicians made it into the American scene, but there were so many great musicians here. Mm-hmm. Marilyn Partland, the the, the, mm-hmm. the piano player, she's, yeah. she's from England. So, okay. you know, there's people like that that came over, that came and they wanted to be, play with the great people on 52nd Street. Mm-hmm. But that was, it was difficult enough to get in the door in London because this music wasn't that popular. And popular music was, you could turn the radio on when I was a kid and it sounded like it was 1935. I mean, the music was still like, little kind of string group playing the melody of something but it wouldn't be anything like the record so there was a there was so little music and that was known as mainstream radio then or that, yeah we only had one channel playing music with on the bbc we just had the light program yo what's up this is fonte fontigolo from team supreme black representation in media is very important to me i think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences some of my earliest influences were donnie simpson uh, i would also say tom joiner angela stribling uh sherry carter they were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me the next generation of influential black voices can be found on npr's new collection black stories black truths black stories black truths is a celebration of blackness from npr each of npr's black voices are as distinct varied and nuanced as the black experience itself In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So what I know is Northern Soul. Like, when did that break out? Northern Soul was kind of like a, that was really a club thing that happened late 60s, I think, through okay. mid to late 60s. The thing that happened all simultaneously was the pirate radio happened, and that changed what the, the fact that we could get the pop music played by the original artists, not interpreted in these slightly square ways. Mm -hmm. And the, the TV shows that played pop music got hipper. Mm -hmm. And like one week, Ready Steady Go, the Friday night for, for show, just had the Motown review on, and like just blew everybody's minds because suddenly all these people with like style and you know, coordinated moves and everything. I mean, you've got to think, before that, it's four lumpy lads in beetle suits and their hairbrush forward for 20 minutes before the show. You know, they just right. thought to do that. Okay. And they're doing, I don't know, Fortune Teller or something by Alan Toussaint. And next thing, you've got David Ruffin or Marvin Gaye. You know, it was a bit of a mind blower. You obviously, you could hear the bands. You can hear the musicians, that were who they were listening to. They copied everything off records, and records took about six weeks to get to England. I I just met um, this weekend. I was in L.A., and um, one of the main cameramen from Ready, Steady, Go Oh yeah, happened to come to an event of mine. So it's kind of weird. In the last month and a half, um, well, I've been talking to the, the shindig people. Mm-hmm air quotes talking that's all i can see now <laughs> i can't tell you the context but i've been learning a lot about how the pop scene got developed over in the uk and you know i'm, I'm learning these things totally different totally different timeline totally different availability it wasn't commercial for one thing so it didn't have that drive in it you know it didn't have that that the same thing driving it right. we had commercial television we had two only two channels when when i when say at the time the beatles started there were only two tv channels bbc one bbc B two no bbc and itv so bbc and oh. one commercial channel okay so they both had pop shows but they were kind of square and they were based on different things and then then they started bbc two and they would have jazz programs and that was kind of amazing actually because they'd get really good people on them you'd see errol Gunn or you'd see oscar peterson mm -hmm. There's a lot of footage, and and the BBC weren't very good at keeping it, so I don't know how much they they went over a lot of things. So yeah. things I saw as a kid, not memories of. I learned that they would yeah. watch the they were they would wipe the tapes, you know. <sighs> but the, I mean, you know, if you saw something like Hendrix, when he he was on the Lulu show and he and the Weak Cream broke up and mm -hmm. he just played that Sunshine of Your Love, he said we're going to stop playing this rubbish, which was Hey Joe, which was his hit. Mm -hmm. And that was, I saw that live and it just blew my mind. I mean, it was like, hey, television just went out of control, you know? Right. Because you remember this is at a time when, when the, on the radio when I was a kid, they used to make the, the newsreader put on a dinner jacket to read the news on the radio. They had to, <laughs> Wait, be, what? They had to be formally dressed to read the news. I don't ask me why. Maybe it made of them to think that what I was saying. This, this is the BBC. They should, they should see us right now. Yeah, they would just yeah. So it was a whole completely different world. And when you know, you can imagine, Hard Day's Night was a film with a group play, talking in their ordinary voices. Right. 
not like they were in show business, but they seemed like they just were lads from Liverpool. And the American pop movies were mostly Elvis Presley, and they were just involving Elvis as a truck driver, Elvis as a racing driver, Elvis as a helicopter pilot, whatever I, it was. I saw, Elvis on a surfboard, you know, like... Yeah. I got to tell you, I, I saw uh, Jailhouse Rock for the first time this Sunday. That's a good movie. <laughs> uh, well, they... The, the, okay, so in context, Quentin Tarantino has a... Um, what we would call a grindhouse in LA. It's called the New Beverly. And basically Quentin Tarantino purchased this place because he wanted to recreate what movie theaters were like back in the 70s when he was a kid. So it's only 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter print. And it's weird things like, you know, a Kung Fu flick, science fiction film, uh, old Western or old classic or Italian noir, whatever. And, um, he graciously transferred my movie, Summer of Soul, to 35 millimeter, um, and it was done in double feature. So on Sunday, the double feature was Elvis's uh, Jailhouse Rock and Summer of Soul. So I saw Jailhouse. I've seen that scene before, but I've never watched Jailhouse Rock. And it just hit me that I I think, with the exception of, is there a film called Blue Hawaii or Blue? Yeah, Blue yeah. Hawaii. Yeah, I think. That's the only Elvis film that I've seen. Now, now I want to watch them all. Cause, Are you sure about that? Well, <laughs> just the for, the format, <laughs> the format of this film is like there, it's any excuse to make what videos basically yeah. like to you know. All right. Well, we're also we, going to rabbit holes out of yeah, it. So let's go yeah, back nah, to yeah. You were taking us to you, your this your is, beginnings. It's nearly impossible for me to state to pick up the guitar when I was thirteen without referring. To the fact that I know because I've read, you know, your book, and uh -huh. I, so I know that we have this one, and we talked about it before. We have this one, you know, sort of key similarity, despite all the different experiences, is the example of your father playing music week in week out. Whatever it is, is very different, and it gives you the sense of it being both magical, and you get an idea of the mundane. Like I remember really going in with my dad to the radio studio when they were on the do when I was on the school holiday I'd go with him in the morning and it'd be a bunch of people reading the paper and I think still smoking in the theater I, I remember them as having cigarettes maybe they didn't but they were definitely just reading the paper and then some then the conductor would come the band leader and then bring it to attention they rehearse then a group would come in and rehearse and that group would be somebody from the charts mm -hmm. so it'd be the Hollies or Engelbert Humperdinck or whoever was on the show singing a couple of songs inevitably if that's your perspective of it, it changes it just being a kid waiting for your favorite record to come on the radio or your favorite record to come on the couple of TV shows a week that played the music you liked. The fact that my dad was in the front room learning the songs that I loved, like the first record I ever owned was Please Please Me. He gave it to me because I asked him for it, but it was a advanced copy that he was learning off a piece of sheet music so he could sing it on the radio that week. The Beatles so he would, second uh, hit. Oh, know? okay. I see. So he's singing Please Please Me in the front room. And then my folks split up not long after that. So then he would just give me the records. He'd come around and give me a stack of singles. I was going to ask, what was the first record that you remember buying with your own money? Uh, Fame at Last uh, was an EP by Georgie Fame. And it was pretty cool because it had... One song by Lambert Hendricks and Ross, one by Mose Allison, but it was a it was a Willie Dixon song. Mm -hmm. uh, one song that was uh, by Louis Jordan, and one song by Ray Charles. That they was that's who he was covering. 
So okay. that was a pretty good education. Four songs, a 21-year-old organ player from Lancashire mm -hmm. doing that for a nine-year-old kid. That was a lot of information to get all on one record. Because he was, what he was Jordan song. It was. Oh, it was a uh, Saturday Night First. No, it was a, no, no. It was way after that. It was a later one. It was a Point of No Return. It was a, it was a, a Goffin King song. It was, it was sixties. Like oh wow, it was a late, oh, later, later, later. Yeah, la okay. And Georgie did Gene McDaniel's and Marco Santa Maria, and and he had a, he was hippie. Knew Eddie Jefferson, and he he knew a lot of music that the other organ players didn't know, like Stevie Winwood. They the new R and B, right. All those guys all knew all the great R&B singers, but Georgie was unusual in that he he sang like like Mose Allison. He sang like a cross between John Hendricks and Mose Allison. He sang, you know, you see me walking this panel. He had that kind of deadpan way of singing, you know. Have you seen John Hendricks? Goddamn, like he must he have could been. sing like he could sing John Hendricks' music just great. Yeah, he he <sighs> could sing like John things Hendricks. like he could sing like. Uh, down for the count and little darling and those things the neil hefty things you could sing the bassy things he sang with a big band mm -hmm. he was a really great musician for our I mean, listener, is a great musician for our yeah. listeners out there um if you can peep it's it's a later john hendrick song but there's a um okay so if you're familiar with i've, I've talked about this on the show before the idea of a uh, vocal lease vocal lease is where uh jazz lyricists would put words to jazz songs that never had lyrics before. Mm. And so John Hendricks does this um, really amazing version of Miles Davis's uh, Freddie Freeloader, and he does it with Al Jarreau, George Benson, and Bobby McFerrin, and basically the four of them, uh, with their very unusual jazzy voices, um, verbatim recreate all the solos on Miles's original Freddie Freeloader with the lyrics, which, is is the hardest thing to do i mean they they notated each like i've played the original and their version simultaneously and they followed every every lick of those solos and put lyrics to it and a narrative to a story about a guy who loves alcohol but anyway i digress if if you're into john hendrix that is definitely well that that with the song on that ep that they did which was lambert hendrix and ross and of course annie ross also yeah another Scottish import to mm -hmm. the jazz scene, you know. Whoa, I did not know that. Yeah, she I thought was, he was a, she, I thought she was American. No, she wasn't American. She was, I think, Scottish. Yeah, <laughs> fuck this. No, seriously, like you just invented your a new podcast. Like the two of you fucks could talk for fucking ever. Wait. About, and it's all great. But the, the problem okay. is there's like 10 references every five seconds. <laughs> so it's like for people trying to figure out what the heck. What we're talking about. What we're talking about. Like, give it that while. They're going to have to, you know, you can turn a podcast down to, to like half speed or like, you know. I, you know, I do that actually. I yeah. mean, all right. You guys are ridiculous. Okay. Honestly, it's ridiculous. Right. No, take over, Steve. Forgive me. I am yeah, going to take sorry, over. Steve. I know that Elvis wants to talk a little bit about Summer of Soul. I uh, do. I, I know that you that you saw it. Summer of Soul just. I mean, I have to thank you for more is that. You know, the Summer of Soul had to come out when it came when when it was shot. Mm -hmm. It it put a had a corrective, I think for the way people sort of regarded music. And I mean, I remember going to see Woodstock and that was our first glimpse of a festival. Mm -hmm. You know, I was living in the north of England, you know, it rains all the time, like right. constantly, it seems like for years, it seemed in those days. 
And we just thought, well, that's going to be great. One of these days we'll have one of these festivals and everybody, all the girls will take their clothes off and we'll all slide around in mud and mm -hmm. it'll all look great. You see, Summer of Soul, it was kind of, for well, one thing, it was in a city. Right. So the right right there, you kind of had whole families out of it. You didn't have this one generation of people working it. Wait, time out. i got to ask you a question. So you're telling me that in 1969, yeah. Reading, Glastonbury. They hadn't happened. They hadn't. Oh, wait. So I'm under the impression no. that America was laid to the table. No, no, no. And no, that no, Europe had no. been throwing festivals all that well, they, time. They were showing festivals where they used to kind of like hit each other on the head with a bladder on a stick, you know, or, or like jump around the maypole and stuff back in the medieval times. But they didn't have like rock festivals. No, they didn't. I mean, they had gatherings. So and they, when did festival cultures start? In I think Glastonbury is the first one is 70 or 71. Wait, what? Yeah. Oh, I mean, one of the big festivals that everybody remembers was Bath in, in 70. Yeah. But it was a pretty small festival. And then... We didn't really have a, any big gathering, like like nothing on the scale of Woodstock. I mean, maybe in Europe they had them. I don't remember hearing about them though. I didn't wasn't paying that much attention. But we saw so we saw the film Woodstock, right? And then I I, I was talking to some people the other day about I went to the Bickershaw Festival in in '72. I was already playing then in Liverpool, mm -hmm. and I remember did a gig on the Friday night, and I came out and it was raining like. They said cats and dogs, you know, just like looks like a load of needles dancing on the on the on the pavement. And it mm -hmm. never occurred to me that it would be slightly damp in the field I was going to outside thirty miles away and then got on a train the next morning with just a blanket and boots. No sleeping bag, no tent. I I didn't even think about it. I just thought, ah, I'll just sleep under the stars, Robert. Oh, it would be like God. And it was like you know, it was like a, a waif back from the lines in the First World War when I got there. It was like you had to wade through feet of mud and yeah. it was miserable and cold. And, and I and they were selling these giant like messenger bags, human sized mm -hmm. messenger bags. And that's the only thing you could that stopped you, us from all getting hypothermia. And then listen to Captain Beefheart at about three o'clock in the morning. And the next day, the Grateful Dead played for four hours. You know, it was like and that was glamour. You know, that was about right. as glamour. And I had trench foot when I came home. You know, it was like. It was it was nothing like we imagined. So seeing Summer of Soul and seeing a festival happening in a city. Right. Okay, it's over weekends, so it's like it's a collection of festivals really. But it's with still the eighty thousand Yeah, but I mean right. the, the thing that's so great is the fact that you've got those interviews with the little kids that were there mm -hmm. that were witnesses to this stuff. And there's a whole corrective to like what that all of those people meant apart from the fact they had the jazz mm -hmm. and the gospel people and then you know all the little vignettes like right. Mahalia Jackson handing the mic to, to Mavis mm -hmm. you know I mean the parts of it that just I don't know whether I'm reading into this but like having said when like 65 or something when the when the Motown mm -hmm. review came over and the fact that you were you know in the same way as people say are you Beatles or Stones are you as we said Temmies or Tops you know, oh, either temptations. Got, yeah, or you can't like them both. You know, right? Like you're stupid, <laughs> really, because I liked them both. You know, but, right? But so David Ruffin, when he comes out and he's he's like the kind of returning prince, you know, and right, and then he's sort of fragile. You know, it, I, it was a curious look. It's a curious look because because they love him without, when, when he comes out, and then his act kind of looks slightly stiff. Yeah, because he's used to playing much more. He's not. He he's like, also used to four people being. Four, yeah, because it's right after he left, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And then, guess what? You know, the band that that everybody's shocked by 
is Fifth Dimension and completely kill. Right. And they're kind of seen as kind of square. And then when you see them, they're not square at all. They're mm-hmm. fucking great. But everything's great. And then you get the vision from the future. You get like the visitation from the future with mm-hmm. Sly. And I mean, we just, if that at all, I mean, Sly at Woodstock, it's so far in advance of everything else on the right. bill. I mean, it's so far the best thing on, on it. It's the mm-hmm. best music. Even even Jimmy, it's like by the end of it, it's it's like there's nobody there watching him. The the big moment is is Sly, but if people had seen that right. in the context of all of it, can you imagine how different things would have been? The Stevie Wonder right before he makes Talking Book, you know, like that's exactly what the hell. It's it's all these things, you know. That's literally like that's why I made it because I mean, at the time when it was offered to me, Prince's autobiography was out, and he was talking about like. Being an eleven-year-old watching Santana do this guitar solo, and he's like, "That's what I want to do when I get older." And mm. like, I'm really—he was discouraged from doing music because his dad was like, "You'll never be as good as me." So already that chip on the shoulder, I got to be better than my dad. Thing happens, and his dad wasn't the nurturing type, but his dad takes him to see Woodstock, and through Santana's set, Prince is like, "That's what I want to do." And so for me. You know, luckily I got there because, well, again, epigenetics, like my parents coming into that situation in the world where your parents are musically inclined, you can't help but reach this destination. But I just wondered the hundreds of millions of people that who could have been affected by this. And again, to hear you say it, because in my mind, I'm thinking that America got the festival idea from over in Europe. But I, I don't think so. No, I think it was a spontaneous, you know, I mean, there's, right. there's, you know, when you look at Jazz on a Summer's Day, you know, and you see that and you see Chuck Berry come out mm-hmm. and you watch the band behind him, like it's an all-star band behind him and they're, they're really a band that are designed to back Louis Armstrong, you know, they, right. and they're just looking, it is Jack Teagarden that played trombone with Louis Armstrong. I mean, he's just looking at Chuck Berry like, what what thing is he doing here? Because I guess that guitar sounds like twelve times louder than any guitar than, that would be, right. and and really it's not that loud. But but the differences in the music is so great, and and that's but that looks pretty. That's pretty kind of still like an. It's not really like a festival. It's like an open air show. Mm-hmm. It's still like a garden party. It's a bunch of people up in Newport like looking at this. It's great that we got it. Newport Folk Festival is the same. You get a bunch of Bohemians, and then you get Bob Dylan comes out, and it's totally like a revolution. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's anything in England that's there's the Cambridge Folk Festival and things like that. I, I don't remember there being anything that we could go to like that. Well, this shows me that Woodstock, the movie, is the legend that set people's thoughts about festivals and people's thoughts about hippies and people's yeah. thoughts about America and people's thoughts about those acts that played. So. Yeah, as, as and my we point. saw all those movies. Uh, you know, we saw Easy Rider with all that, with all the music with Hendrix in it, and and Steppenwolf. You know, and, right? And that seemed like whatever the movie was about, whatever it represented, those movies were things that people all have you seen that because it was a, it was an X because it was mm-hmm. naked people in it and <laughs> drugs. So those things don't. The country was pretty buttoned up. People think it's like oh, it's all happening the swing in sixties and all that, but that's all just happening on the films that the that they made pop films in the 50s like on the Elvis model they put the star of the day in the movie made up some daft thing what's right. this one about oh he's got a he's got a racehorse okay well this one's about a racehorse this guy's got a chip shop whatever it is you know they make up some story right. and stick a couple of songs in it 
then then it all changes again. So the idea of a bunch of people getting together and putting music on, and I mean, I mean, what's the name of the guy that's the the, the MC guy? Tony that, Lawrence. Yeah. God, he's like, you could make a whole, you know. I I said to Jeff Jones that you know I went to the Get Back premiere in London, mm -hmm. and I sat next one away from Glenn John. Wait, you went to the Get Back premiere? How long was the movie? It was like a hundred minute cut with a with an introduction with Peter Jackson and one okay. of, one of the days of the the eighteenth day of. the Have recording. you seen this yet? This is where I gotta cut you guys off. There's no way I'm letting you talk about that documentary because okay. that's well, the let next me, hour. Let me. I, let I, me I've let already me, decided this shit. Let, let me just say this one thing though, because it pertains to Quest. But yeah. I mean, I think there was an actual article in the New York Times about Glenn John saying that he was kind of like, had it with people ringing him up going, what about your clothes and get back? Because Glenn is wearing like the greatest outfits. Yeah. He's the most stylish man in the movie. Right. Likewise, you could have had a Summer of Soul line of clothing from the MC. He's got the greatest clothes. Right, be, right. No matter who's on the stage, he's he's like, he's got the an outfit almost as good and nearly always like, right for their style too yeah. it's like he dressed he knew okay exactly i'm gonna come out and i'm gonna introduce yeah i'm gonna be right for that you know it's yeah. like he's given a lot of thought to it it's wonderful no he, he changed for every act that was there. that was fantastic so yeah. do you want to ask your okay. first uh Elvis <laughs> question? so, yeah, so that was the introduction this first hour of <laughs> <laughs> whatever but i did see um get back it's freaking mesmerizing obviously if you're a beatles fan there's so much and even if you're not actually i think if it i think like, yeah sir if you just like people you know if you just like people it's yeah but if you're a beatles fan it's like oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right for me i think this is where the story begins with regards to the two of you it's the year 2000 and it's right after voodoo had come out mm -hmm. in 1999 but for me the story starts with a vanity fair article more of a list the dictionary uh, that came out that elvis uh, put out in vanity fair in the year 2000 it was essentially his 500 favorite albums or mm -hmm. most recommended albums something along those lines and 500 records he had to hear before you died i think or yeah something like that it was very ominous that uh, that article <laughs> that article started my friendship with lisa robinson because i was like i want to do that i could do that you know so we sort of yeah <laughs> i don't know how i came across it but my first you mean you're was, not a subscriber? I'm gonna, sugar I'm yeah. gonna tell you how he came across. No, literally, um, it was a big deal that Vanity Fair did a music issue, mm -hmm. was just unheard of at the time, and I remember, I think I brought ten copies of that. Okay, I'm gonna tell you how how that article and that specific issue saved Annie Leibovitz's life. Are you ready for this? Ends a voodoo connection. So my publicist gives me a call. We get the roots get word that we're going to be one of the subjects in the music issue, and that Annie Leibovitz is going to shoot us, which is the highest honor at the time. Like, there's a photographer that's going to shoot you. Has to be Annie. So of course I'm I'm the point person for the roots or whatever, and you know I, I talk to her on the phone, and she's in Paris right now. And she's shooting uh, maybe three or four artists that like she's traveling Europe, like getting them and whatnot. So this is mid two thousand. We're on tour with D'Angelo. I also think that the first leg of the Voodoo tour is done. We're about to start rehearsals for the second leg of the Voodoo tour. And all I remember was okay. So we had maybe two or three weeks off, of which I scheduled time with Annie Leibovitz to to do the shot with the Roots, and something happens on D'Angelo's end 
Could be anything. Right. No, no. no. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, like we, we missed a deadline or missed whatever it was, uh, whatever the set date was supposed to be. We had to kick the can to the next week and then the next week. And then, and then when we kicked it the third time, I told Alan Leeds and the, the guys like, look, I got a, a photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz in Philadelphia. I can't do that day. But it was like our only day to rehearse. Like, you know, it was one of them things where a D'Angelo happened. So what winds up happening is I don't want to lose this shot. And I hit my publicist up and we hit her up and we're just apologizing profusely. And she's like, look, look, it's cool. Um, we can handle it. Matter of fact, I'll tell you what, this this will give me a week to, I think most deaf was coming to Paris. She's like, it gives me a chance to shoot him and do other two other artists. And then I'll hop on the plane and come back and then we could do you on this particular day, which was great. So we have that settled. Turns out, and this and this is where D'Angelo Isms saved her life. Had we kept that original arrangement, Annie Leibovitz would have been on that last Concord flight that crashed and killed wow. all the passengers. Wow. So in the week that she decided to stay for most deaf, she avoided being on that flight. You know, thank God for that. Wow. So, yeah. That's I, crazy. And the epilogue is that I told D'Angelo what happened. <laughs> and he says, who's Annie Leibovitz? <laughs> and I was like, dude, she's the most epic photographer of all time, dude. Like, and he's like, oh, man, to be fair. And he pulls out a Jet magazine that he's on the front cover of. Right. <laughs> he's like, this is what I'm about. <laughs> so. Right. Well, now I know how I found the, yeah, the cause article because it was you. Yeah, yeah I, I was <laughs> I was on that tour. <laughs> I had 10 of those. But yeah, I think, yeah, I had 10 of those uh, issues because right. no, it was a big deal. I still have it because I used to use it. I was like, this is the ultimate record store tool to have. Absolutely. I so. purchased many an album off that list. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So on that list, was voodoo mm-hmm. yeah that's the first time that i knew that you elvis knew about him quest and about d'angelo and i'd heard that record so how did that how did voodoo get on your radar how did you get your hands on it i have no idea i don't remember anybody i think i just you know like anything you something filled us through and then you listen to it and it's great maybe i read about it somewhere well maybe the video i mean there was a there was an instant buzz what year is 2000 january 2000 i i lived up on a hill in ireland in still in those days i didn't see any i didn't have any cable television the story that i've always gotten from people is there's always a younger person in someone's life that's sort of like i think this is an album that's going to resonate with you because this feels like an era that you loved and if you're a lo- if you're a fan of Stevie Wonder, if you're a fan of yeah, Mar- if you're a fan of that sort of pure soul, then there's no way this record didn't hit your radar. I think it's probably that recognition, but that's kind of also common to a bunch of other records that are probably. I for one thing, I had no idea you were going to ask me. I would probably be surprised by some of the records that are and aren't on that list because you could have asked me three days later and it would have got a different five hundred. You know, right. So, but I mean, I remember thinking there. I it was almost the only thing I really calculated was I didn't feel obliged to put records on that I knew a lot of other people really held in high regard. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no records by the Doors because I can't stand the Doors. Why can't you stand Wait, the you Doors? Can't stand the Doors. I know. No. I, I know. I really? knew that about him, no. but I don't. I can't figure out why. I just it never spoke to me. It just never did. I don't know why. I can. I like a lot of them. Was it from too that pretentious time. or too? I don't like. <laughs> it's yeah, okay. You I'd, don't have to say. Yeah, I. I don't know. It's sort of like. It's kind of cool that you don't like the doors. Yeah. No. I don't, and people always think <laughs> I would because of the organ and you know and everything. Right. But I just and I think they're all sure they're all refined players, in their own way. And I, when I break on through the uh, to the other side, I like that one record. That's the only record by the doors I like. The first. Even Riders of the Storm. Break on. No. No. And my friend played on it. Um, it's like uh, you know. Jerry Chef played on that. He so he was in my band. Wow. But uh, no, no. At Led Zeppelin, there's no Led Zeppelin records on that. I literally never owned one. Really? There's no Pink Floyd records. I, I, Whoa! Because I only t- own two Pink Floyd discs, and they're both singles. See Emily Play and Arnold Lane. I've never even listened to Dark Side of the Moon. I've no idea what the wall sounds like. Wait, is there <laughs> any? Is there any homegrown act that? You dug, homegrown. Well, I mean, just from I mean, from these, England. Yeah, the Beatles, yeah, the Who, the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> the Kinks, the Small Faces. The Small Faces for me was the next group after the Beatles. It was like it, not the Stones. It was the Small Faces. Really, Tin Soldier, you know, All or Nothing, all of those records. Yeah, but the Kinks. The Kinks, absolutely the Kinks. Right. Tell only the, up to only up to a certain period. Tell though. this man, please. And the same thing. It's really selective. It's anything about musical choices. Like I say, it would have been a different five hundred. Have been, you could probably pull one up there. What, what what's with that record? And I go. I don't even remember saying that should have been on the list. 
I would still put Voodoo on there now, but I don't know what else is on there that would surprise and I don't know. That what? was such a relevant I think what Quest yeah. said is right, though. I think it's right. I think it speaks to some continuity. And you see, this is a, the, the part of the thing that comes from our inability to hear everything is the things that we did hear in England really went deep. So nobody said, have you, when you asked me about Northern Soul like mm -hmm. two hours ago, you know, that's a organic kind of m movement to kind of dance to records that nobody else had. Like there's a particular kind of beat. A lot of the Northern Soul records are not from Detroit, they're from Chicago. Right. There, there are a lot of Chicago things. So, because they, they, I don't know why it was, but maybe that slightly different sound. Motown, or as we didn't even call it Motown, we called it Tamla. You say, have you got the new, have, have got the right. new Tamla record? Right. We said, what do you listen to? I listen to Tamla. <laughs> and it's Tamla. And all we had were these singles, or we had compilations, Motown Chartbusters compilations. Volume yeah. three, in particular, is a particularly good one. You know, and. What is Soul, which was a was an Atlantic Records compilation, right? I and, have it. And Tighten Up Two, which mm. is a, which is a reggae rock rocksteady compilation, right? Those you can have a party with those, and we didn't have a lot of other records, and so because you just the play radio those over did, and over, yeah, but those that was pretty good. You could play those round and round, and I think that's it. It made you really kind of like go behind a painted smile, you know, uh, this whole heart of mine. Heard it through the great those records. But we didn't know the Gladys Knight version of Heard It Through the Grapevine necessarily. We, okay. we only knew the Marvin, Marvin version. version. So all these records, they would, and then people got into the more esoteric thing and then they started dancing at the Wigan Casino. And this kind of slightly looser beat that they had on those Chicago records, mm -hmm. Major Lance and these kind of Curtis Mayfield produced records, they're not like the Curtis 70s records. These are things that sound like they're imitating Motown right. but are not quite getting it right even. You know, they're not on the same level of musicianship as the Motown rhythm section, mm -hmm. but people, for whatever reason, it was a particular kind of BPM, it was a particular kind of rhythm. Way faster. Faster, yeah. and and it, and this crazy dancing that they did, and the crazy clothes you've seen, the right. you've surely seen the documentary about yeah. Northern Soul, you know. It's a whole thing, and it's totally based in the North, and it's nothing to do, and the suburbs where I lived, we were Rocksteady, Motown, or Tamla, Right. You know, these, that, and then I went to Liverpool in 1970 and they asked me what kind of music you like. I said, I like Otis Redding and Lee Dorsey. And said, you like soul music? I said, yeah. And Tamala. And I went, that's for, that's for divvies, they would say. Divvies means like, yeah, it's like, like idiots like that music. Really? You know, like, because it was, I don't know why. So what were they into? So they were into kind of Pink Floyd and, and like all this prog rock and uh, rock, know, heavy okay. rock and, so I ended up like in the Grateful Dead because nobody would nobody go with me on that because so well what's it do you don't you're not a big prog rock guy but you God's, like the Dead, the Dead are not a prog rock band. well they not, they, not, they not, wander not, into, not, I mean, not, not in 1970 70, 70 oh wait hang on we could I, go down a whole other rabbit hole I honestly right. thought I was just going to say one thing and yeah. ease out of here but now you you stuck me and I I do this with almost every guest guest the house with your entire record collection yeah is on fire. Yeah. You can only save five records. Oh. And they can't be greatest hits or box sets. 
All right. Can they be 45s or LPs? LPs. I mean, more records. Well, he might want his please, please me 45, you know? Well, Mm -hmm. I don't mean the sentimental saving, but uh, what five albums, non-greatest hits, non-live, unless it's a a special live record like Volume 3 of uh, James Brown at the Apollo? It can't be a compilation record. It can't be a compilation record? It can't be a compilation. That's not fair, though. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just saying some artists, like you don't know their albums because it's I'm just trying to figure out, like, what is the the canon of original albums? Yeah, but you would, I think if you really had a chance and you knew where they lived. How could you ask him this question? If you knew knew that your house was on fire and you're going to lose everything, you'd, you'd pull the rarest records that you knew you couldn't replace. You wouldn't, like... Uh, it's a difficult question because I would definitely... I still have my original mono revolver. Two-parter. All right, okay, so, five, so I'd pick that one. Five wow. rare, five yeah. of the rarest albums that you own. Yeah. And five of the seminal... Okay. Mono yeah. revolver. No, okay, but all right. What Five of the rarest albums you own, what are they? I don't know that I... I don't really know that I have rare records in the same way as you do. I mean, I think at this stage, well, okay, I've moved so many times. You have a mono times. revolver? A mono revolver, I definitely want. Okay. Sound Venture. Sound Venture by Georgie Fame means a lot to me. Okay. Not so easy to get. Uh, f- from later on, I... What's the most expensive record you shelled out for? Ooh, I Actually, probably a 78. You know, I, some some of the 78s come in like four or 500 are you? you know, are, do you have a '78s collection? Because yeah. that's a whole rabbit hole. That's a whole rabbit, rabbit hole. Holes. Yeah. No. So I, wait, I, should I accept those? Because people all the time. Well, no, they're, real, like, they're not real records. Don't go into that world, dude. Well, Just, I mean, I'm not really interested in '78s, but, but you know, like old great grandmothers are passing away, and their nieces and nephews are like, "Yo, Quest, I don't know what to do with this." But it's an endless. Why, why, they have why, like three hundred of not, these. No, you, you. So I should take. Should them? I tell you why? Because acoustic records. Acoustic records before there was electrical recording. Think about it. You're like literally staring into the horn of the Victrola, and you're you can go right through that little hole into the room they're playing in. It's coming. It's one generation away, isn't it? It's one generation closer than electrical recording. Wow. All right, so yeah. the answer is yes, I should accept. Louis Armstrong on an electrical recording? Absolutely. But his collections are pretty, he's got a collection of collections already. I'm sure. You know? I know, I've seen the pictures. He's got a storage yeah. room for his storage yeah. rooms. Yes. Yeah. So what's, you don't know the most expensive? I never, in the way of collecting records, it's always been about what's in the groove. It's never been about the catalog number or the funny label or this is a different sleeve. I never cared about any of that stuff. The, the other reason is because when I first came to America, I, I after the first trip, I I you know the handle fell off my suitcase on the way home because it was so full of records I'd bought in secondhand stores. I it used to come with an empty suitcase, knowing I'd fill it up, and the whole joy of it was like, oh, here's a whole album by Bobby Blueblad, here's a whole album by the Lubin Brothers. You know, this I had maybe one track on a compilation. All those here's a whole T Bone Walker record. You so know, whatever. You, you were a compilation guy. Well, no, that's what we. That's how we got to know about stuff. Because of getting the Motown records or the or Stacks and, and mm-hmm. Atlantic collections, right? I didn't have a whole record of William Bell until I came to uh, America. Then you could you could find them everywhere. You could find like great records, whatever it was. You know, it's weird. Yeah. Um, Detroit Spinners, as we called them, you know. Right. You could. I had singles on the Spinners, but then you could just go buy albums of them. You know, it was like. So you know, it's weird now. Philip Wynn, you know, it's like. Uh, yes, you know, it's weird now. I am collecting and paying top dollar 
for UK acts that would cover American stuff. Like, I'm going through a kitsch phase now where I'm big into cover songs. So there will be, again, like party records, the idea of doing a compilation with just straight up hits that you could put on at a party yeah. and let play all the way through and then put on side two and let play all the way. So there would be these bands from like, from Liverpool, bands from Brighton, especially in Brighton. There's one group with the name Brighton in it, but they're not known. Mm. But it's like their cheap imitation of James Brown's I Got the Feeling or whatever was hitting at that time, like Science Hill Deliver. And what, 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 what kind of period of time is this? 66 to 76. It would be like the K-Tel of yeah. whatever. Shout out to K-Tel. <laughs> Where did they come from? Hey, before, I mean, this, this is a thing. I, I know this sounds like I'm bringing my dad in this all the time, but this is what he did. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he, he did I, it in the early 60s. I mean, you, I don't know whether you know this, but the beginning of Pirate Radio, mm-hmm. There was the guy, Ronan O'Reilly, everybody knows about that name, his Irish guy who who's founded Radio Caroline. His partner was an Australian guy who had the other pirate radio ship, which was which was anchored in the in the estuary of the Thames, broadcast into London. Okay. Now this guy had a crazy scheme, and this is true. He thought that he could cover records, mm-hmm. make them cheaply at nine in the morning in downtime, mm-hmm. and the record the song was because he'd come out of publishing he believed that he could have those records top the the original versions so those are the super kitsch versions because they are no for no copies and he thought he could get away without paying anything but publishing i guarantee you, you see this is genius it was like, like okay. of course it failed and the, the plan failed you know because people saw through it okay so uh in portland oregon yeah there's a writer who wrote the encyclopedia of of Kitsch records or whatever. Yeah. He sold me, um, this is like the most I've ever paid for a record collection. But even the store was like, wait, you guys, you know this is not the original stuff, right? These are like cheap imitations or whatever. But for me, the same drum break intro for Superstition of Stevie is just as valuable if another drummer did it. Like yeah. it's still a drum, a drum break and, is a drum break is plus, a drum break. Plus there weren't that many musicians in, in England playing on these records so when my dad would go and sing on these records it yes. would, the guitar player would be Vic Flick the same guy that played the James Bond thing it would be that it would guy be the same- it would be the same guy that would be playing on the legit session anyway they did these things right. and they paid them cash and they sold them at the supermarket they sold them at the gas station or the petrol station we called them and I- they, were, they were 45 EPs these were before the albums mm-hmm. that you probably know from the you know they were later called Top of the Pops because that was the name of the BBC Weekly Show. It's a whole subculture of music. We used to get them even when we were on the road first. We'd get our records done in Sweden where they wouldn't know any of the words. they just make up a bunch of nonsense words to all my lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of half Swedish, half English. You know? Wait, for the record, what, what is your dad's name? Ross McManus. And that's the... the that's his well, stage no, he, name. Well, no, he had a bunch of names because he was a different person on every track. Dude, okay. You'd never find him. So I have 7,000 pieces of just a bunch of bands from Europe covering American funk songs and American soul songs and rock songs or whatever. But, but also, the other thing, Chris, is that the, there, was five, there was five to six weeks between an American release. Mm-hmm. So no matter how fast they got that, the publisher got that song over... What was going to happen first was sheet music travel faster than records. Right. So if you had Billy J. Kramer or somebody, some good-looking guy out of Liverpool, 
he could get a cover of a new Burt Bacharach song before the American version could come out. Quite often you'd see two songs on the charts, the same song, done by, you know, the the English cover version. Right. Which And then there'd be a ghost record, as you might say, the, 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 the ones we're talking about. <laughs> so there'd be that version playing on a pirate radio station. There'd be the local English group, like Scylla Black singing... Anyone out of heart. Right. Dionne Warwick hates her for having done that. Really? Still is going on about it. Now, after you, <laughs> next time you see Dion, oh, I say, totally say Scylla Black and see what the I reaction is. I yeah, can't no, wait. I can't wait. No, she's still mad at Scylla. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then, of course, what would happen was the version would come out, the American version. People would notice it was a little slicker, maybe the vocalist right. was better. Certainly the standard of production, I think, generally was better, standard of arrangement. There's a big difference in the sound of an English horn section, American horn section, different mm-hmm. timbre. I could tell you in t- two bars whether it's an American or English record from if there's brass on it, you know. Well, I'm going to blow your mind now because e- now yeah. the inferior covers is what would attract a hip-hop producer today. Yeah, like yeah. the trashier and the more off notes they play. Yeah. This is right okay, up our alley. I've got one for you, right? Before we go back to Steve's agenda here. Who? Because you got to go. <laughs> yeah. Do you know the label Habibi Funk? I've heard of it, yes. Yeah, it's a, they do all... They North do a compilation. Africa, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, compilation. Yeah. Number seven in the series, Casablanca Shuffle. Okay. It's a note-for-note cover of Bob and Earl. Harlem, Harlem Shuffle. Shuffle. Yeah. And the guy goes to the first phrase of it, you know, except he goes up past the note, down under the note, because he's hearing microtones, you know. He's hearing like like Arabic music inflection. you got to hear it. It's cr- it's crazy. First time you hear it, you think, oh, that's just out of tune. Then he does it the second time, and you realize that's the way he sings. He's And other than that, sounds like they got a, 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 you know, a reel-to-reel tape recorder and put the microphone against the wall of an apartment that was playing the record next door. That's what the fidelity sounds like, but it's killer. Damn, yo, you really know your music if you I know mean, about this. That's what it sounds like. My memory of the Harlem Shuffle is going to a works dance at a chocolate factory when I was about 15. Right. And the, all the girls lining up, all the girls, from, I, it was somebody, a cousin or some worked there, and I got to go to this works dance and they all lined up, all these all these girls that worked there, and did the dance that they thought was the Harlem Shuffle. I had no Shuffle. idea what it was. It was like, you know, they just got it. And when that record came on, and that record didn't sound in that place reverberating. It wasn't played through a very good sound system. It sounded no more, you know, polished than that. Does. Right, exactly. But the spirit of it, and all of, all of these records, because half of them are, are like mishearings of, of records that, you know, they sound like Dyke and the Blazers is what this sounds like, you know. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Don't even give us a start there. Yeah. All right. I'll be right there. But, Steve, this is All now right. officially your show. Okay. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money... What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. 
So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at chumpacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. He's, he brings up a topic that I, yeah, yeah. that I wanted to bring up anyway about what's now become known, I think, in general as flipping something. Somebody will hear a song, an old song, a producer, let's say, mm-hmm. and will say, I'm going to flip that, which means essentially I'm going to take that, chop it up, sample it, yeah. or, or even not sample it physically, but take the idea or the vibe or I, the energy. I, I, I mean, you, you know, obviously when we started is like we had about three, I don't think there was any ability to sample it there was i wasn't aware of it and music didn't take the same advantage of it people might have copied choruses i guess they would have had to lose a generation to do that in analog no no i'm not no no i'm talking about we would in terms of hearing figures within songs Mm -hmm. you know like that's why i never had to write anything down early on because you'd going it's the rhythm from this song with the guitar part from that with right. one note changed. So you get what I'm saying. So how at. is that different to sampling? Except right. we were just playing it. It's not different. And that, no. that's kind of what I'm... That's that kind was, of when, when sampling became dominant, it didn't necessarily sort of seem to me like some people that played their instruments reacted to it like it was some kind of cheating. But I said, well, this is everything we've been doing all along. Right. It's the degree of imagination that you bring to the, to the new version of it, the flipped version, as you say, is whether it's any good at all. I mean, this is the difference between being Jeff Lynn and somebody, you know, like from Manchester, like, a, I won't say the name, you know, but you know what I'm talking about. And you sometimes, I believe, uh, reveal these types of things, your inspirations for certain songs in concert in the middle yeah, of the song. Yeah, you might you quote know. something, you know, that's obviously underneath the song that you're playing. Or I think it's also the way you get the particular notes in a vocal if you're not like, you alluded to the kind of not having a melodious or particularly beautiful voice. It helps to think like another singer phrases, so that you you know you do something with your own. Are you still doing that these days? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, sometimes odd words will come out. Wow, I thought I actually sound momentarily like somebody else for one word, but I'm, it's not really important to the understanding of the song. So I never underline it. If somebody comments on it, then. If they notice it, then it it was because it was there, but it's not important to to the telling of the story that yeah. people rec. I'm not doing it to be recognised. It might have been like, how would such and such a singer approach that line? 
Well, there's, a, a, yeah. I guess, innumerable ways of, of approaching what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you hear a baseline that you admire, and yeah. so you in, invert it or you use well, it as inspiration. Well, didn't we get into this when we did when we when we first started? Uh, when I first came on on the show, and we were I, the, I was playing with the Roots, and you know, when we listen back now to the sample that you made, and we were getting a little ahead of ourselves into Wise Up Ghost, but say. The sample from My New Haunt is Quest playing, is derived from Quest playing Chelsea, which mm -hmm. is Pete Thomas playing Fire by Mitch Mitchell. Well, by Hendrix, but but it's specifically the Fire part that he's referencing. So that's like a, that's like a you know a flip of a flip of a flip. Correct. Four times. And I don't know if you're counting this as one of your flips, but the sound is actually a sample of you and the Roots playing live on the stage. Yeah. So, so it's a sample of you guys. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but, but it's being quoted twice over, <laughs> you know, because Quest is rationalizing it to his style of playing based right. on Pete's part, which is based on Mitch's part. So that's, that's, that's why I, you know, yeah, I, I, people are surprised that I didn't take exception about you know, the pump it up quote on the Olivia Rodrigo record, but that would be just ludicrous because it's like, right. It's, it's it common be. language really. You know, if it had been a whole melody or a whole lyric that was just stolen, that would, that would be obvious and you would take exception. But I think a certain amount of language in songs and beats particularly, are, that's, that's common. That's folk music. Right. I mean, that's, that's how it happens. Mm. Um, I'm certainly not trying to get into that discussion of whether this is right to do or oh, wrong no, to do no, or anything no, like no. that, but, just to acknowledge that, you know, Mozart probably sampled from Chopin or whatever. Haydn. Uh, okay, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Figures you fucking know. <laughs> but anyway, um, the real comparison I wanted to get you guys yeah. to talk about is how you've been doing that since the beginning, you know, and he's been doing that. And you're both doing essentially the same thing, but with different techniques and different technologies. Definitely, yeah. I mean, so, is that one of the things that I think that we've talked about, you and I have talked about, and we experienced over the, you know, I... I was still making the previous record I'd made before we worked together was was recorded analog and and edited digitally. Most of the records prior to that were recorded analog. Since then, the distance between uh, the two uh, mediums has closed because nearly all of the outboard plugins that people design to work in digital recording today are in it, are imitations of analog. The warmth of analog. Uh, equipment valve equipment and and uh, you know sort of very carefully modulated recreations of <laughs> spaces and all of these things all yeah. these libraries of plates you can download in an attempt to bring something less brittle to this very facile way of recording of digital which of course is amazing if you don't want to bother to play more than two bars of music in succession because you could go on forever you know you could you could have every two bars have a slightly different sort of resonance mm -hmm. if you could be bothered to do it you could you could you could process you could just play a two bar loop and 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 you know paste it sequentially and make it sound like the most incredibly organic sounding track now if you wanted to do that or you could just fucking play it, you know. Digital is like a photograph of something where you like sort of immediately lose a generation just right off the bat. There is something to that for sure, but but I, I actually come into peace with it because it is much more, and I certainly couldn't have made the latest record unless we had 
Or Wise Up Ghost, for that matter. Or Wise Up Ghost. And as we know, from the first time we played the music in the room, the music changed shape the minute, even though all, you know we were all the same people that had played those parts, for the most part, the minute we actually just played those numbers in a room, the music completely changed shape. Right, it stopped right. being quite as angular and became greasier and like, you know, flowed in a different, totally different way just because it was happening simultaneously. Yeah, it's not, a totally different not, thing. not a collage, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I wasn't involved at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I didn't want to say that. Yeah. Um, but before we get to Wise Up Ghost more in depth, you know, you're on Questlove Supreme and, and the, the audience here are as fanatic about Quest as mm. I am about you. So can you tell the, the audience what it was like the first time you played live with Quest and the Roots when you came onto Late Night with Jimmy Fallon in December of 2009 and you did High Fidelity and Chelsea? Well, I think the High Fidelity was a particularly interesting thing because it was the decision, which I don't think was mine, was it? No, it was, it was mine. That was your mine. idea. I take you, full you, you had heard the, which was then a bootleg. You'd heard the bootleg. We were since legitimized it and released it in the Armed Forces box set. But it was a, an arrangement that we had not issued, I don't think. Was it available then? It was available through was available? Rhino or Oh, Rhino maybe we had released like it. We hadn't remixed it is what we hadn't done. Okay. We, we hadn't, because we hadn't gone back to the... So what you, you were referencing was a board tape. Mm -hmm. And so we put the board tape on that Rhino thing, and then we, in 2020, we actually went back to the multi-tracks. We got the multi-track and, and remixed the whole wow. thing. Yeah, that's, Sebastian did that. Wow. So that's why the version that's in Armed Forces is a little bit more kind of body to it. But that was a that was this... I mean, I, when we did that record uh, in Hilversham Whistler Studios in 1980, it was supposed to be some sort of a take on all the music that we were talking about earlier, the stuff that was kind of like that wasn't made in England was all the stuff that filtered through all as much about R&B as we kind of knew as we call it R&B and soul that's the words we use for it those words have different meanings now they have different associations yeah but when I said you know like nowadays say you're talking about 50s R&B you're talking about early 60s like Howlin' Wolf or Slim Harpo you're talking about you know these the, these different kind of feels and then the music that we identified we saw it as distinct. It was Southern Soul or Soul that was on the Atlantic label. We saw it as something different than Tamla, which was obviously had a more poppy, uh, the way the voices were and the way things were arranged and the, the way, the, you know, the, the orchestration, the different kind of other instruments that would pop up in them. They seemed to have more in common with a lot of pop records that were being made by the mid-60s. And, you know, in these definitions, what, what we heard, it was like the, the just, just the fact that the, the, the Atlantic records for the most part had horns and a rhythm section with maybe piano and organ uh -huh. whereas the the Motown or Tamla records from the mid 60s had a lot of vocal group like often the Temptations even the singing on other people's records but but really kind of like very very well arranged vocal parts and strings and they were played by jazz musicians you can tell they're played by jazz musicians they're kind of light feel incredible you know james jameson to hold that whole kind of funk brothers band 
it's a very different sound to something like Muscle Shoals or mm-hmm. or the you know stuff made up on 48th Street at Atlantic, you know. And that, that all the bands in England that copied the cues from these records were trying very hard to play that. So we grew up hearing, as I said, twice over those things, and sometimes then turned up a little bit, like the small faces gradually brought volume to bear on that picture. You know, you could tell which records different English singers were listening to, but they didn't necessarily sound like faithful colors. It gradually got looser, and then it then it by the time we got making records, it was it was completely different. We had a lot of stuff to draw from. Mm. When we went to 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 uh, do that record in in Holland, that we had already had pretty much all the hit records that we were likely to have in England. We'd had every, from Get Happy, you mean, or well up to Get Happy, we had a couple of hits off that. Everything we made was a hit from late '77 to '80. There was sort of, everything was a, a top thirty to top five record, every single. So that was a good run, you know, that was like what established us in England. But at the same time, we were barely getting on the radio in America, so the things are kind of out of joint, out of, out of joint you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we got in to do that record, we had arrangements that still carried some of our ideas from the previous year. And the big influence on the Armed Forces record were European-sounding records like ABBA. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, the Bowie records, you know, specifically Low and Heroes, but also Station to Station. Mm-hmm. And Station to Station was what we were aiming at when we did the slow high fidelity. That's Brian Eno stuff? No, that's before Brian Eno. That's the, I don't know who produced that record. Um, I don't know. Who, I, I don't know. I never really checked who produced it. But it was, you know, it, it had a sort of a funk bass. A, you know, it had a funk basis to it. Mm-hmm. But then David Bowie's kind of vocal, and it had like the Nina Simone the song associated with Nina Simone, Wild as the Wind on that record and TVC 1-5 and the beginning of that kind of, you know, European influence funk. But it didn't, so we were trying to, we were enamored of that, right. all that music. And we're trying to play like a machine, but we didn't have the guitars. We didn't have the sustained guitars. We didn't have the layers of synth. We didn't have the layers of production that he did, you mm. know. We were just a four-piece band. So the, the live arrangement of that was a sort of feeble attempt to play like station to station. And all that happened was when we got in the studio, we said, well, we better pick up the tempo because the song is getting away, you know? So the live recording was prior to yeah. recording the studio? Yeah, version? that was in the summer. That was in the summer of 79. So we were, <sighs> yeah. Well, it's so 70. strange. To, I mean, I, maybe you weren't satisfied with, with that arrangement, but that arrangement does have so much it has hump a lot of, to it. It has a lot of freedom to the to the where the vocal lies yeah because you can dance around the beat a lot more because it's much slower and you can sing the melody i mean if you th- here's the thing is that high fidelity sung at that tempo is similar territory to you'll never be a man it's both influenced by the spinners you know i mean they're like the spinners tunes you know uh-huh. some things you know you know so philip Wynn was like one of my you know the people the voices in the head kind of singer i could never sing like wow but it shapes the way you phrase melody mm-hmm. allison is based on philip Wynn. you know so it's based on ghetto child you know i know it sounds crazy to say that doesn't uh tracks my tears or tears of a clown or something like that well I, I would allison. quote those on the end of it but but it's it's really laughing just a little and the spinners that are much more the 
the staccato way that the the figure the da 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 that part of Allison, you know, comes from the spinners. Or the Detroit spinners as we knew them. Right. <laughs> I guess my point, and we got to yeah. it, which was that this this arrangement had some real funk to it, some hump to it. It sounded to me like Quest Love. Yeah, and that's well, why that was exactly... I mean, when he dropped into it, it was like, oh, now it's home. Right. Because now he understands that thing. And that... And it's more resolute. And we've got, like, a bigger band. You know, it's mm. a, it's got the sounds. And, and, and horns Kirk is... And yeah, got horns and you've got Kirk... Who can has got you know? I had just had, I didn't have any effects in those days on my guitar. The set of effects was tremolo. I don't think I had even a distortion. I might have had a distortion pedal by by the time we got to '79, or some sort of lift because I never played solos. So it was like the guitar straight in, and maybe just a tremolo pedal. Mm-hmm. Later on, I used to play with a Roland Space Echo. You know, and, a, and then later on an Echoplex, and on Echoplex, so uh, Watkins copycat, you know. But I didn't really get into uh, processing pedals till much later, yeah. 20 years ago, really. I didn't play with any, really, until then. So yeah. so you, you come on uh, onto the show, apparently not to promote anything uh, at that appearance, because uh, there's no... I don't no, even know yeah. what that was. Yeah, I don't know how that <laughs> even came about. Was it... It could have had... I think it's, you were either supporting Fallon or you want to play with the Roots or something. Or I think just, it was just that. Or, or it's what year is it again? This was end of two thousand nine, December of two thousand nine. Could could have been something to do with spectacle. That's around then as well. Yeah, I maybe you were couch guest too. I, I can't remember. I can't either, remember but. now. You know, I just remember two thousand nine is around the time of that secret friend Sugarcane. And being in Nashville and and Momofuku, I was making those records all at the same time. You know, if it had been in the days of, of Twitter, and I remember when we were making Wise Up Ghost, I remember one time we were waiting for Quest to come from something that he was at, and we were checking his feed to find out where he was. So, <laughs> you know, and if that had been the case, it would have been like that. There was a period where I was doing like a lot of different things. I had, when we did the the spectacle show, that required a lot of balancing of getting all these people, you know, the, like anything, like any television show, getting the guests to be there and then rehearsing for it and the different musicians that played on each one. But I could be coming from Nashville having made, Zygrophane was made in three days. Oh, wow. So, you know, we just went, it was a three-day session. It wasn't an album. There were three record dates as in the All Star because it was acoustic music, you know. I'd been in... So were you thinking EP or something for that? No, or? I was thinking... I was thinking something, but I was thinking we'll get these songs in the time because look who was playing on it. Wow. I got the greatest, you know, that's like an all-star band to beat the beat the band, you know, the, those players. It had nothing at all to do with bluegrass. I mean, half the songs we recorded there I wrote for an opera. You know, half the songs we cut on that record were, were written for an opera that I wrote, that I did for Copenhagen about Hans Christian Andersen. So it was a kind of wild lot of harmony for players that played a mandolin to play you know they they all were like it never had anything to do with bluegrass it was just acoustic acoustically rendered it was like chamber music you know so all those different experiences there i think playing with the band again in this in in a studio on television was pretty much unprecedented the previous band i'd played with on television that wasn't uh my own group in some one way or another would have been Letterman's band or something. I never played with Letterman's band ever. Wow. 
No, no, never played with them. I always played with them on my own. Well, on spectacle, you must have played with. I played with other bands on that, but prior to that, uh, the other experiences were the return to SNL. When I went back, I played with the house band of SNL, and Paul may have been in that band then. I don't think he, I think he'd already left, uh, and uh, the Beasties. But the, the, when but, the Beasties backed me, and and when I re did on the twenty fifth anniversary show. Uh huh. Yeah. But the Roots, known as one of the greatest live acts that there mm. is on the planet for the last thirty years, something like that. And so, you know, to feel that uh, energy behind you on that version of High Fidelity, yeah, I guess you felt like you made the right decision to come on the show, hopefully. Totally, right. yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's <laughs> sort of like, it was like a realization, and, and we would have never gone back to that version in that arrangement. You know, we, 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 I did it occasionally after that, and I think the band, the Impostors, did learn it, and we did it occasionally that way, or start it like that, and then cut into tempo. That version's what's known as a banger. Yeah. Because it bangs. Yeah. Like, you know. No question. Uh, and then here in Chelsea, that's a different thing again, you know, because that's... That was, I know. think, a mistake on my part. Why? I mean, I, I, obviously, we got a, a whole new song out of it. And, you know, we were referencing not only the original, but there's a like a... There's another demo version of it with a like a distorted organ. Oh yeah, that's like, the earlier version. Yeah, yeah slightly slower. Yeah. Slower and yeah. a bit reggae and you yeah, know, like yeah. um so and, and we used to come in, you know, bear in mind they used to make us re record for television. So when the record was a hit in England, you would get you would get these three hour sessions and most bands couldn't play their records, so they were glad to just switch the tape while the they weren't looking. They'd switch it for a copy of the rec of the record, and give the BBC essentially just a dub of the record, and then say they'd cut it. You know, so there was this whole subterfuge where you had to go into the studio for three hours. It, it was intended to protect the jobs of the union members that had played on records in the in the sixties. And by the time we got to everybody playing on their own records, which was most everybody that was on these shows. There was a whole game going on where all the studio time went to waste. So, of course, because we could play, we would come in and play the live arrangement, which may be faster or had a different break, and they'd get pissed off with us because we they got their camera cues from the record, and then it would be different <laughs> when we turned up at the studio. We just used to fuck with them, you know. Right. But it was it was just something to keep it from getting stale because the whole thing is like the one thing about. American television from the get-go when the very first time I was ever on TV in America is you did play live. I was never heard on the BBC until Live Aid. Mm. Every single performance on the BBC I was lip-syncing. Mm. So my first ever performance is in front of 70,000 people with one guitar. Good job on, on the that. BBC. I did okay. But I played on the other side, on the commercial side. My debut was on was just with one guitar as well. On a sort of early evening show in Manchester and I did one or two performances with the band and then the uh, shout out to wave a white flag while we're here yeah, okay. yeah. sorry and the attractions played only one time a session where we played more than one song on the BBC in 86 when when blood and chocolate was out and and then we didn't play again until the 90s there was no live at all and even now you don't you the other night it was on TV in, in England and I sang up a track which is just karaoke isn't it? it's not real because the music doesn't go with you anyway. You you have to kind of just sing over it. It doesn't sound very good. No, I'm not no. a fan of that. No, it doesn't feel very alive. You a, know. Aretha Franklin came on uh, the Tonight Show or Late Night with Jimmy Fallon a, a long time ago. She sang to a track, 
And I was like, oh, come on. You know, you yeah. got the roots here and for for one. And even, you know, just. That it, does seem like a missed opportunity. Yeah, but a little I, bit. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, she was great, obviously, but, you know. Yeah, no, but you still want to, you know. And, and, and I mean, by the same token, there's a, there's a clip of her, like, dragging a BBC band through Don't Play That Song from about 68, where she's just killing on the piano. She's playing piano. And you hear like how one player that really knows how it goes can influence even a even a band of musicians that probably wouldn't ever have played anything like that mm -hmm. before. So well, sometimes yeah. that was a really great thing when you have that. Sure. Know? Yeah. With regards to Chelsea, the reason why I just I thought it was going to be perfect for the Roots, and they played it just too similar, I think, to the original, and uh. it, it didn't. Like I was trying to get the reggae aspect into. I was trying to mash those two yeah. versions up, the original. Yeah, and, well, maybe and we the should demo. have played it even a little slower. It would have been interesting because then yeah. that would have been a different feel. So the second time you came on, you were promoting National Ransom. Oh yeah, well that, that's the one I really have a clear memory of. Really, right. I mean, the other one I think it's also intimidating when you go in and it's a whole bunch of new guys and you don't know what they made of it and, and I'm not bringing in a hit song or a song that's even on the radio or anything I'm playing you're bringing in stations I'm bringing of the cross summer, no, but, but, but even the first time I'm bringing in like a here's a version that we didn't record in the studio this is something I just did in a field in Holland well, 25 years ago this is a good idea fellas you know uh, I think we've no but I I think I knew right away that the, 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 the curiosity coming from you and coming from everything that I knew about the band and everything you'd already done was this was this was okay this was really good in fact it was actually what it's about and think a little bit like a talking about the festival band you know they used to put festival bands together to have like all stars play together mm. on jazz festivals particularly harder to do with rock and roll bands or any other kind of music because they're not equipped to do it you know right. to get off their own <laughs> script but they but the uh but to do this seems like really in the spirit of being on tv where you'd get like really unusual combinations like bing crosby jose feliciano and the supremes now check that one out look, on youtube you know there is actually a clip of them going through about 90 like not 90 about 25 songs in about four minutes medley one of those crazy medleys that changes every three lines, you know? Ugh. I know they make you nervous, but it's in the same spirit of the way they used to jam people together that should have never been seen. And occasionally there'd be magic. There would be on TV. There would be some risk involved as well. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So on November 5th, 2010, promoting National Ransom playing Stations of the Cross and Black and White World with The Roots. Tell us what happened that day. Well, first thing, first thing I remember is that I was playing Wurlitzer. I don't usually play piano for one thing, not leading a band, but I really wanted to play, I wanted to play the feel of that song simply on the Wurlitzer to sort of get it locked in from where I was sitting. I knew the rhythm would be great. I felt like there was something going on with the bass line that had been played on a double bass by Dennis Crouch. So I was really interested to hear Mark play it, first of all. Uh, shout out to Mark Kelly, who specifically yeah. asked me to mention his name on this podcast. Yeah, I, I bet he did, yeah. <laughs> and then it's, it, it's kind of like, it was always supposed to be a really ominous song. It was a very dark song. It is a very dark song. Then I remember we were walking, I don't know, in the hallway, and Quest said this thing about I think you'd been in here, right, with uh, with D'Angelo, and and it had gone really late. That's what he'd told me, or he'd been working or something. He'd been on a session anyway. Uh-huh. You know, this was for some other thing. I don't know what it was. And then he said, "And now we're learning these in a mountain flame songs." And I said, "What the hell for? <laughs> you know, this is so difficult." He said, "Because John McLaughlin is here, as so I was sitting in with us." So I said, "Well, can he play on my song?" <laughs> And the next thing we're in, what I think of, I mean, I, I'm always, I don't know, where, are you still in that little room or you've got bigger, <laughs> since COVID, have they, have, they've had to give you a bigger room? Where do you think we are? I imagine you're still in that little room. The, the TARDIS. TARDIS. The TARDIS. <laughs> so the TARDIS, I'm sure, has been described at length on this show. But I mean, from, from my perspective, it is incredible that I'm sure it was just the tech cupboard where they used to keep like spanners and, and whatever it was before it was your studio. It is amazing that so many people can function and breathe in there, you know. We can't function or breathe, but go ahead. Yeah, but so that, I think, is part of the magic of playing in preparation for playing on the show is to be in that room in close proximity because there's no avoiding it, even though Crest has got his booth, horn section's in the back lounge, the rest <laughs> of the band is in this narrow thing behind your board. I mean, it is an amazing... And then you add John McLaughlin playing... <laughs> 500,000 notes, you know, every time I pointed at him. Because it was simply a vamp on one chord in between the verses, so we just let him fly, and as everybody knows. And he was so good-natured about it. I mean, I, I have no idea whether he had ever heard my name before that day, but he went into it so openly. Right. And it was it created a, a different kind of tension. If anything, it was like a moment of lightness, him playing all those crazy... But you've played at a lot of those tribute shows and fundraising shows where everybody comes on the end of the show. Yeah, but they the can, they're not always that well. You know, it's rare. I've been in a number of very old bands over the years. You know, I was once on a stage in a, in a club doing a, for a birthday show I was cut to do where I ended up on stage with James Burton and Jerry Garcia playing behind me. You know, that was pretty weird. <laughs> Wonderful, you know, and all playing the wrong guitar. 
but but for to, to have that kind of lock on that on this ominous groove and this kind of hump that 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 Quest found in it in the in the beat, which ended up being like another piece for us. Uh, that was great. I mean, that John was playing on it too was wonderful. And, so. uh, and and Black and White World was a song that wanted to go like that. Now that's a song that Quest had played with us, hadn't he already? Had he had he played it with us then there, or did he play? No, it with us? no. Uh, shortly after this appearance, he came and played it with us. He yeah. came to the Beacon yeah. or something and played Black and White World on stage yeah. with you. Part of the wheel show, yeah. Part of the spinning song. Right, show. right. But you just called it. It wasn't chosen on the wheel. No, you just it called just it because you knew gratuitous. he knew it. Gratuitous. Yeah, yeah, it was like yeah. Uh, but yeah. he did. We often cheated in that way when we got in the later and we want some song we wanted to play. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pete actually ended up singing that night because uh, he was pushed off the drums to right he wasn't best pleased was like, why isn't pete thomas universally known as one of the greatest british or whatever drummers have you met any drummers from his have you met any other drummers you know there's a lot yeah. of really maniacal like really i've egotistic. met one in particular no but i mean there are there are some <laughs> that really are gonna tell you all about their own brilliance there's a lot of them that are not as good as they but think he they doesn't are. need to speak about himself but why is it why hasn't i think it's been part of that that he hasn't been broadcasting it and partly you know big mouth here has been kind of taking up all the airspace up in front of him for yeah. 45 years i i absolutely say straight out now i just have i'll tell anybody that wants to listen now charlie watts has gone he's number one mm. he's the number one rock and roll drummer playing today wow I'll say that right out. Uh, that's uh, all kinds of other kind of music, but as a rock and roll drummer, there's nobody close. And be honest, he's playing now as uh, good as he played then? Uh, I think he might actually be playing better now. Well, than just... And he would say, I think he would admit the fact, like the one thing about going to Spanish model, you know, the record we did where we re-recorded we re all the vocals in Spanish with guest artists mm -hmm. to over the attractions, original parts. A lot of those artists are very much used to the, you know, the conveniences of modern recording technique. Two of them in particular, click track and auto-tune. Mm -hmm. There's none of that on... on they, obviously, we didn't have access to that. Neither of those things were really part of our scene. So that was a lot for some of those younger artists who were used to knowing what the tempo was, and they've always got that click going, keeping them in time. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, well, what's the tempo? And we're going, well, in the first <laughs> verse, people would want me to say this. But our records do speed up a lot, and well, they slow down sometimes, in the, as they're supposed to. Sure. And then certainly, there's no auto tune on them, you know. Yeah, so thank they, God. They, yeah, thank no, God. Yeah. yeah, the Roots and Elvis Costello with John McLaughlin. You can look it up. Yeah, uh, November fifth, two thousand ten, on Fallon and Black and White World, which again had that high fidelity arrangement hump that I'm talking about. Yeah, that well, I, I always wanted to had it. That was that was yeah. um, that always had it. That though, was yeah. always had it. That mm -hmm. when we arranged it like that, it went a different way originally. That song. Yeah, it was a completely different song. It was acoustic folk song sound like a Ray Davis song. Which version you like better? Uh as a story piece of storytelling, the first version is is But is that's be, called is, number two, right? Yeah, that's a better that's a better for 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 telling the story of the song, that's better. As a piece of music, I like the version that we played that night. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of like I remember us being in, you know, with that was a lot of drinking involved in that Get Happy record. So there were these episodes where we'd just get frustrated and all be Sort of squabbling and I say, "Oh fuck it, let's just do that." Did you play it like Little Feet? It was actually what, what it was like. That was us trying to play it like Little Feet. And if you sort of can hear some of their wilder stuff, not 
particularly Sailing Shoes kind of record, mm-hmm. you can sort of get that, that, that Pete is kind of referencing Richie Haywood, who was this great drummer that played with that group. Now, people don't much know their, 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 their music now so much, but then they were, they were a band that, you know, we all admired. And we'd, so that was in our references along with all the other things, you know. We're talking about drummers, but, but let's get back to guitarists like John McLaughlin. And you mentioned Jerry Garcia. Yeah. So can you just tell us what it was like to know him and to play with him on stage a couple of times? Uh, I only played with him the one time. I, I, I spent a little time with him. I did an interview for a magazine about... I'm only asking because yeah. I know you're a fan as well. Yeah, well, I just think it was... There was a period where I really did, really love the, the, the records, really from... I never really did like the long improvisational things as much. That didn't fascinate me as much. Hmm. I liked the sound of some of their records or kind of strange kind of folk baroque kind of psychedelic stuff and i really love the stuff that's very you can hear in so-called americana records now all these things that 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 echo the dead from 70 to about 74 but specifically american beauty and the record that preceded it worker men's dead they just had really good songs Mm. they had this really good good like maybe 20 songs that were really unbeatable and I saw them play a couple of times at that time, and they were they were terrific. And I just didn't. When they went off into the other thing, I could think of other music that that, that extended like that that held my interest more. Mm. But I could see why people liked it. It just wasn't my thing. I guess the next thing chronologically, as far as leading up to Wise Up Ghost, is when you uh, graciously cut vocals for the Swindles project for the Squeeze Covers yeah. record. You and the Roots did a, a version of Someone Else's Heart, and that was certainly fun the first time we got to do that, but I felt like more like that record was a bit of a proving ground for a larger project with the Roots. Like, uh, I, like we I, did I, didn't, live, I didn't know that was in your in your mind at the time, but for me it was like... Uh, it's more looking back on it. It was really like, like I loved it because I produced the original version, obviously, with, with in East Side Story, and I quit when I was ahead as a producer, right? So, I mean, I had three hit, hit albums in succession, as a producer of other people's records. And I wasn't credited as a co-producer on my early records. I mean, Nick would say, from Armed Forces onwards, I had a fairly strong input on the way things went and sounded in final mixes, but I was never credited. I, I deliberately didn't credit myself on Imperial Bedroom, even though I was the co-producer, effectively, of that record, because I gave so much of the responsibility for the way the record actually sounded to Jeff Emery. But the music, the musical input and the musical arrangement of the record, everything that you would call production now was my idea. You know, I, weeks in the studio on my own, just me and Jeff. Half of the session was just me and him. So when I got to do some my own production, 80, 81, and 85, mm-hmm. um, it was only usually with either with friends or bands that I thought somebody else would fuck up. So that's how I came to do the specials which was a band that had a very vivid sound live and a genius kind of arranger, Jerry Damas, and I just needed to protect his vision, as I understood it, from any frailties that I could detect in the actual playing, and they didn't have many, mm-hmm. because they were really very balanced in, in most cases. And the same was true of The Pogues, which was the last record I produced. The band, obviously, genius songwriter and a mixed bag of instrumentalists. So sometimes I'd have to step in and maybe bring a kind of steadying thing somewhere in the instrumental 
you know, ensemble. But the rest of the time, I just try to catch her while it was going on. Squeeze is entirely different because you've got, like, incredible facile in the American sense, in the sense that Glenn has tremendous musical facility. Glenn Silbrook, yeah. As a composer, as a singer, as a guitar. He's in a very, very underrated guitar player. Talk about Pete. He's like the Pete Thomas of the guitar. You know, mm-hmm. he, he really, you never see his name quoted as great guitar players. Glenn could, should easily be in that bag. Mm-hmm. Great melodic, you know, the signatures, the melodies of his solos. Like George Harrison, they're like, like hooks in themselves. He's not just string bending and kind of fancy, you know, dazzling kind of playing, although he can do that too. Mm-hmm. And incredible lyricist in Christopher and the two voices in this octave kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And in that band, of course, they had they had Paul Carrick as well. He'd replace Charles Holland, the original keyboard player. And then I knew that was a secret weapon, so that's how we made Tempted, which was the big hit. And that was my idea to do it like that, to sort of take it in like as if it were an Al Green song mm-hmm. and put the kind of like little single line kind of clickety click kind of rhythm guitar that runs through it. It's not playing a backbeat. It's playing that's me playing that. You know, not You're singing background vocals. Singing too, background right? vocals. I, I mean, I listen to background vocals now. They're kind of ludicrous. I'm just kind of doing all of the Temptations parts. You know, it's like I'm doing the <laughs> Black bass. coffee in bed too. Yeah, know? I'm doing the bass voice as well as the falsetto. But 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 we didn't know anybody we could get to do that. So we're just doing it in imitation of records that we loved. You know, and they and it seemed to just work to break it up like that, to divide it up, make it more of a group composition. You know, is the reason you haven't self-produced more of your records because getting a producer is just another opportunity to collaborate with another great music mind um well i i haven't uh or do you have some like disaffinity for it or no no i mean i think there's a couple of records that are definitely i have to take more responsibility for than others i mean uh uh, but but i mean you co-produce a lot of records i co-produced you know i i i mean there's no doubt. I didn't have anything to do with the sound of King of America. But that's I'm credited as co-producer on that because I had, you know, this sort of like brother-like partnership with T. Bonnet from the minute I met him. And there was a lot of things that I wanted to try and do on that record, which changed because we were going to acoustic instruments for the most part in the first part of it. It was supposed to be half acoustic, half electric. Mm-hmm. And really because the success rate at the first sessions, which were with the... Hollywood-based musicians, you know, the, the many of whom had played, like they'd been ex-Wrecking Crew, kind of, and, and 70s era, Jim Keltner and people like that. When the attractions arrived at the sessions, there was nothing for them to play. There was nothing, there were no songs left. Pseudolites. Which was a really great one, but it was a tense session. It was a tense session that didn't right. go down very well, because they still saw it as a, as a you know, unified well, band. Even I'd want to be on that record yeah. too, if yeah. I were them. I don't know that they particularly wanted to play the other songs. I don't, I don't think there was much feeling for those other songs or for where I was headed. But we did make one more record, which again was, was where we gave it, you know, the control to Nick Lowe. I had a little bit more input in terms of processing things than I maybe had done earlier, but it was Nick's decision to say, that's an old bird, which is a pretty great record. That's a Nick Lowe idea to cut between the two keys and have this sort of Strawberry Fields Forever incident where it just sort of goes into phasing and comes out in another key. These are things you'd assume 
I'd kind of picked up from Jeff Emmerich, but that was all Nick's idea. Mm-hmm. So it was like, so you know, he was capable of getting into. Uh, it wasn't always in the bash it down kind of thing. He could also hone ideas. I also produced him around that time as well, which was the only time I ever produced Nick. A lot of artists may not want some other fucking genius in the room and keep their album. I want it to be the way that I have it in my mind, and somebody yeah, else. Yeah, but you got to. I think you. I mean, certainly with Deepon, I think it was the, it was his advocacy for the simple storytelling. You know, I had this idea that you, that I wanted to write with the directness that I liked about Hank Williams songs, even though I was never going to be a country singer. I think I'd already proved that by going to Nashville and cutting a whole record with Billy Sherrill. It's a Sherrill. great record. No, I like that record, but I mean, it was, I had to accept that, that Billy Sherrill didn't really know why I was there singing those songs. <laughs> and he just brought, where he could recognize the ability to try and make a hit, he did what he did, which was put the, the you know, make those sweetening devices which he developed over the hits with George Charles and Charlie Rich, which was the whole reason I wanted to work with him. With the benefit of hindsight, I can think of maybe three or four other producers I might have got to the heart of what I liked about those songs a little easier, but I wasn't at my most kind of uh, reasonable or disciplined at that time. There was a lot of drinking going on in, on that record as well. It was nine day, but you know, like tear really that we that we were on in Nashville. You know that that was a miracle. Any record came out of it, frankly. There's some video of that, right? Some yeah, do- there's a documentary yeah. of it. It's pretty it's pretty sodden at times, you know. Yeah, yeah. and kind of maudlin. Yeah. So just to continue on the timeline, someone else's heart is where we left off, and then you came on for what we were calling Springsteen Week. On the Fallon that's where, show. That, now that's where I'm, I'm thinking about fire. That's right. That's now, right. Uh, Brilliant Disguise, just with Quest and James Poyser as an arrangement, just a drums, piano, vocal thing. Yeah, because I had done it as a pretty much a... I'd done it as a solo, and I'd cut it with just a rhythm section with Pete. It's and, on Kojak and a, Variety, right? Or uh, Well, it was on the extra right. extras. Yeah, it was a, actually it was a demo I cut for, for George Jones. I'd done it a really weird assignment where I'd been asked to interview him for Interview Magazine, which is even stranger. George Jones in Interview Magazine doesn't really go. Um, you know, we were on either end of a line from wherever he lived, and outside of Nashville, I think, Hendersonville or somewhere he lived. And I don't know where he lived, but anyway, he was in America, and I was kind of talking to him from Dublin. And it was, I was asking him why he had never looked like Willie Nelson had done to kind of a broader world of songs because I really he had these same songwriters that gave him tunes over the years and mm-hmm. truthfully many of them were unworthy of his voice um, and so I started naming songs that I thought he could sing and he had not heard of any of them I mean there were songs by songwriters he'd never considered and sort of I said well maybe you know I could send you some of those and I was trying to basically get a gig producing him mm-hmm. and he didn't quite take the bait so I thought well he didn't he didn't ask me to do this, but I'm going to go in on my own dime. And uh, you had worked with him long before this. I had though, recorded yeah. with him in 1979 on right. a, a track, and I'd been on TV with him Stranger. Uh, in the interim and sung with him on a television show a couple of times. Yeah. So I did know him, and I just went for my own amusement as much as anything to go in, and I did, I think, ten songs in one day. Just recorded them like me, Pete Thomas, and the bass player that Pete used to play with before the attractions, a guy called Paul Riley, who'd been the engineer at, at Nick Lowe's uh, studio, Ampro, and had been my first choice for the attractions. 
he'd been he'd turned me down. Who's that? A guy called Paul Riley, and and I had actually asked him to be in a band before we had the attractions. What does he play? Bass. Okay. Yeah, and he didn't want to do it, so. <laughs> um, no, Paul is a great bass player. And he played in a group called Rugulator, which was a great group. With a, a I'm just kidding, Paul. Just kidding. And he ended up being, a, you know, valuable engineer at, at Nick Lowe's studio, which was a little home studio which had been owned by Tony Visconti. Tony Visconti had owned that building and had a little studio where he'd mixed a bunch of things, Sparks and Diamond Dogs and things. And then wow. Nick did a bunch of things in there. I cut with Johnny Cash there. Uh, so it was like it was a tiny studio you wouldn't even know it was there it was a little bit like the TARDIS you know it was like you'd be walking along you would never guess there was a studio inside that building you know it didn't look like a it looked like a house so is like the whole bonus disc of Kojak Variety like all those demos like you're going to make me learn some yeah you're going to make me learn some uh, I don't know what I put out in the end. Uh, um, How long has this been going on? George mm-hmm. Gershman's song. I, I always heard that as a country song. I thought that could be done. George Jones could sing the hell out of that. So on March 1st, 2012, you came on and played Brilliant Disguise in this totally yeah. weird arrangement, yeah, I guess. Sort of uh, very spare. Uh, very you know. sparse, yes. Yeah. And also Fire, yeah. the Bruce Springsteen song, as made famous by the Pointer Sisters. And, yeah. And that's where you added a, a Too phrase... Hot. Yeah, too hot. Which I'd cut with the specials, which was uh, right. Two the Maytals. You see, again, you see, oh, that's the thing. Is that we that I don't know that so much that people don't. I don't know whether they realize that the kind of second kind of like the way a lot of um, musicians really know a, a lot of R and B uh, references. You had all these kind of bands that were really kind of blues fanatics in the early sixties. By the late sixties, you had people who, like that, that are my age and a little bit older and younger than me, who had totally heard reggae in a way that I just don't think it was part of American music in quite the same way. Mm-mm. You know, it's just like Jimmy Cliff and then Bob Marley and mm. a few other one-off hits. But we had a lot of it. You know, we had a lot of records, sort of blue beat records, and they, if they weren't actually in the charts, they were like the sort of secret music like the we were talking about northern soul that kind of reggae that from scar through rocksteady through reggae before molly and the whalers it was like we, we all knew these vocal groups that sounded sort of like the impressions that were all sort of like influenced by that close harmony groups or sometimes doing covers you know people i think quest and i had this talk and about this before dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Everybody says that's I'll take you there, but it's not. It's from a, a reggae record that they were covering, you know. So it like this crosstalk between all these musics, you know. So I think this is kind of that point where you said that famous line standing in the TARDIS, which was like, "Hey, uh, we've recorded half of Get Happy already, you know, remixed whatever, re-recorded Get Happy. Maybe we should make a record." And uh, that's when me and Quest looked at each other, you know. Ah, like, you see, uh, that's not, you see, that's your, that's the victors. The victors get to write the history. <laughs> now, my memory is, as was walking off from the set, I, that that second or third time, I don't know which time it was, and Quest saying to me, you know you, we're going to make a record. Okay. So well, I don't know which, which of those remarks happened first. Both things could have happened. And maybe I said that because he'd said that to me already or the other way around. Wise Up Ghost, which, you know, connects with this conversation that I want to have if uh, if he ever comes back, is, uh, you know, the ultimate example. Do you have to pee? 
tune in next week to see if Elvis needs to pee. This has been part one of our Questlove Supreme interview with Elvis Costello. Check out part two when I squirm some more as this music monster lets loose and dumps the skinny on Wise Up Ghost, his collab with The Roots. My name is Sugar Steve. I love my job. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.